Welcome to River's Edge Church Podcast. Each week we strive to bring you biblically accurate, exegetical preaching of God's Word so that you might belong, believe, and become like Christ. We hope that you will find this week's message beneficial in your walk with Christ. Uh, Today we're looking at what it's like to be on mission for the family. So I know, (laughs) um, oddly enough, we talked about the over there. And for many of you guys, I don't know what your life has looked like. But for me, growing up in the church, missions work was always over there. Like, that's always what I thought it was. Over there where the people don't have things. And so a lot of times it was tied into, like, goodwill work. Like, hey, we've got to go build a shelter. Hey, we've got to go, you know, fix a house, do some plumbing, do something, right? And over my time and experience in mission and really studying it, and really pouring myself into what it looks like to be a faithful missionary of the gospel, one of the things I realized is, um, is that God has called all of us to be on mission, first and foremost. But how that mission looks is very different. How that mission looks uh, for each and every one of us is not always the same thing. When I said missionary as a young child, missionary meant someone way over there. Missionary was somebody who went to Africa, India. You know, they went to, to South America. And I didn't realize that we're all actually called to be missionaries. Um, as a parent, I be, it became really evident that my primary missionary field is my family. Um, God has blessed us with three children. And my goal, one of my key goals for them is that they would all know who Jesus is. And hopefully, Lord willing... They'll accept him as their savior and and pursue him as their Lord, and I can't control that. But I do know that my job as a parent, my my calling, having been blessed and the steward of these children, is to raise them in a way that they would know who Jesus is, not only through my words, but through my actions. And so one of the things that we're going to look at today that I want to point us to is what does it look like to be on mission as a family. So I'm going to take you to a, a verse in Colossians. So if you want to open up, you can. We're going to be in Colossians 3. And this is actually a section about the whole family. And what's interesting is that a lot of times when we think about being on missions for our families, immediately we go to child, right? Like I'm on missions for my kids. But I realized that I'm on mission for and through my family. I'm trying to pursue God. My, my wife's trying to pursue God. My children hopefully will pursue God. But how does that work its way out, and what does it look like? And God's given us a pretty good example in Colossians 3. Those verses are 18 through 21. And if you'll join me, uh, we'll look there today. But we're going to be, we have several verses we're going to be looking at today. So hang on tight. And some of these are going to be a doozy, so hang on. <laughs> it starts off with a good one. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wife. And don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Um, This is not an easy verse to just jump into. Immediately we see some hard words. I have found that there are certain words in our English language that we immediately kind of like immediately cringe from. One is submit. We do not like that word. The second one is obey, though. So both of those words immediately 
perk our ears up. And uh, I don't know if it's just me and my opposition to and defiance of authority at times that does that too, but I have found that that is a consistent thing uh, across the floor. But what I want you to notice here is that this whole verse is packed and is focused at the family. What's interesting is if you would read the verse before, if we would go to uh, Colossians 17 right there. I'm going to see if I was... No. So I'll read it from here. Oh, I did. Yes. Here we go. <coughs> in Colossians 17, it says this, Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God Almighty through him. Um, I think it's important that this is there beforehand because this is immediately leading up to this verse. And it's important because it tells us, one, that what we do is not for our own sake. What we do is not for our own desire. What we do in all things and all deeds and all acts is through God and for him and for his glory. And so when we go back and look at those verses, we recognize that we don't do those things because of the person that we're doing them for. Wives don't submit to their husbands because of the husband. The husband doesn't love his wife because of the wife. The children aren't going to obey you because they're your parents. I know this. I have three. They don't obey me because I'm their parent. <laughs> There's a reality there that we do these things to glorify God. We do these things and we're capable of these things because of God. And we're going to see that today. But what I really want us to look at beforehand is this understanding of what God intended for the family and why it's so important that we honor God and pursue our family first and foremost. So, um, again, I told you before, we're going to be looking through some of these chapters today. Uh, the first place I want to take you is Genesis. As you often heard, Genesis has all the answers in the Bible. And I want us to see first and foremost that God ordained the family. God's mission has always been to reach the world, to populate the world, to fill the world through families. <clears throat> it started with Adam and Eve. And in verses 1, in Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, we see this. It says, so God created man in his own image. And he created him in the image of God. And he created them male and female. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. I know I've said these verses before. You've heard them from my mouth before. And every time I hear them, I'm always in awe of what they say. Because I look at this and I think of two things. One, that the creator of the universe, creator God, looked down and said, man, well, you know what we need in all of the universe is we need a Ross. You know, we, we need a Ryan. That's what this universe needs. And in that, he gave us this really simple but wonderful command. And, and the first part of that command was <coughs> that we were to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And it's easy to overlook that because we're like, okay, we get it. He wants them to go and procreate. But what we don't understand is that from the beginning, God created families in order that the earth would be filled with his image. Don't miss that. God wanted to fill the earth with beings who reflected him, who were his representatives, who would worship him be in right relationship with him. That was his goal from the very beginning. That was his plan. And that was a great plan, and if that had gone the way that we would have hoped it would have gone, the way that it was designed to go, 
Man, it would have been wonderful. But you see, God gave us free choice because that's, that's what happens. When you love something, you have to allow it to love you. You have to allow it the choice. And Adam and Eve chose wrong. They chose to disobey and brought in sin into this world. They broke the world. And in doing so, it looked for a moment as if God's plan was broken. But here's the thing. What we see is God continues to pursue his will through the family. And specifically what we see later, and we see this specifically in chapter 17 of Genesis, is God is going to produce an heir through generational faithfulness. He's going to produce his way through generational faithfulness. Again, through the family. And so what we see in 17 verses 1 through 6, it's a little longer passage, is God's talking to Abraham. At this point, he's Abram. And this is what he says. says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you greatly. And then Abraham, or Abram, fell on his face. And God spoke to him. As for me, here is my covenant to you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. It will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. And I will make you extremely fruitful. And will make nations and kings come from you. God was going to make himself known through a family. Just as he, remember, this is the same goal as what happened in the garden. God was going to make himself known through the world, through the family. He wanted Adam and Eve to go multiply, fill the earth with this image that I have created. Well, then they broke the image. So he goes to Abram. I'm going to fill the earth with my image bearers, and you are going to have a covenant with me. You're going to live a certain way. You're going to raise your children to live a certain way. People will know you, and because they know you, they will know me. It's this beautiful example. God chooses, chooses a family to do this. The rest of Genesis is us following that family through the ups and downs, through the messes, through the victories, through the lessons that are learned. And we begin to see that this family begins to become a nation. This past couple weeks, we've been in Exodus, and we've been talking about how God has heard the cries of this nation, how he is going to use this nation to bring glory to himself, to restore order with this nation. And what's wonderful is we actually see it in Exodus. We see, we see it in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, where God calls this nation. And we see that God actually says something unique here that I want to point out to you. If you're in Exodus 19, I don't have it on the screen today, um, but I'll read it to you just the same. God has brought Israel out of the uh, land of the Egypt, and he has brought them to his mountain, the same mountain that Moses saw the fiery bush, the same mountain where Moses argued with God, the same mountain where he runs into Aaron. God has brought him back to this mountain. And he has brought all these people there, and he says something to them. He says, now I will carefully, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the people, although the whole world is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation, and these are the words that he said to the Israelites. 
<coughs> Understand this. What God was doing here was now, it wasn't just a family, it was a nation. This generational faithfulness. He had multiplied them to a nation, and he has called them and separated them aside as his firstborn. They now would have all of the responsibilities of representing him properly. They now would have the calling to represent him properly. Notice what he calls them, a kingdom of priests. They are his representative to the rest of the world. Why would God take this literally nothing of a nation? Nowhere, they have no home. They were all captive. They have no power. They have no king. And yet he takes this nation and he lifts them up and says, I'm going to glorify myself through you. He took the least likely candidate and lifted them up. If you were to continue to read the rest of the Old Testament, you would find out something really evident. That Israel fails miserably <laughs> at this. God tells them what the covenant is and he gives them his side. He says, I'm going to honor my end of the covenant by making a nation out of you, Abram, and lifting that nation up and making them a kingdom of priests and highlighting them. All you have to do is represent me properly. Just be my representative. Be faithful to me. And they fail. But here's the good news, as we always like good news. Is that because Israel failed as his firstborn, God sends his other firstborn, his true firstborn, in Christ. What's, uh, what I love is it's if you go through and you look, we read last week about how God calls Israel his firstborn. Um, if you go to Exodus 4, that's what Moses was to tell the Pharaohs, like, let my firstborn leave. And we talked about kind of the importance of that a little bit. Um, Pharaoh understood the world in a certain way, that the, he was the firstborn of the gods. It was one person, that person is the firstborn, and that's how it is. For Moses to go tell him that an entire nation of lower people with no power and authority and no, no anything, no money, no resources, no finances, was the firstborn of God would be completely mind-blowing. It would have shattered everything he knows about everything. And that's what God's constantly doing. He's, he's trying to break down what we have created, this worldly paradigm. He's trying to show himself to, to the Pharaoh what he is actually about, that he is the only God. And what's interesting is the, the other time that we see a reference to God's firstborn comes in Colossians. It comes in Colossians 1, verses 18, where Paul's talking about Jesus. And he says, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come and have the first place in everything. I read this out of order, so hang on. So whatever you do, oh, no, I didn't. I didn't. I was right. <coughs> Twice in this passage, he would be re referenced as the firstborn of God. Twice. And because Israel fell short, God sent his firstborn to fulfill the things that he asked him to do, to be faithful where Israel failed, to fulfill the law where Israel was unable. There's one other reference to firstborn in the New Testament, and that actually comes from Romans 8, 16 and 17. And this is what it says. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit 
that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Indeed, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. When Christ comes and lives this perfect life, fulfills the law, fulfills and is faithful to God, what he's doing is reinstating the original mission. He's doing the things that no one else could do in order that we could go and perform the task to to live out the will that God had for us from the very beginning, which is to be his representatives, to be his firstborn, if you will. That's what brings us back to our passage today, is that we're on mission for our family, but we're also on mission with our family. And these things are not and or, but they're simultaneous. We do them together. It's one of the hardest things that we have to do as parents is realize that God's called us to prepare our children to go. Uh, No one wants to hear that. Um, In fact, it's interesting when I was at uh, Southeastern, they said one of the greatest hurdles that their students faced that were in seminary. So this isn't, <laughs> this isn't children who weren't considering some of these are children who are preparing to, to, to give their life to Christ in some form or manner, who are answering a call to ministry in some form or manner. The greatest struggle they had with sending missionaries out was their parents. <laughs> and I get it. Like, we want to protect our children. We want to care for these children. We want to, we want to hold on to them as long as we can. And we know that we're supposed to prepare them to be fully developed, mature individuals who can be self-sustaining, but there's a part of us that also wants to keep them. And I think it's so hard for us to wrap our heads around this, but there is a reality that God is calling some of our children to go to those places. He is. Just as he was calling some of us to go to places. Just as he calls anybody, he calls all of us to a space and a place. We don't get to choose where that is. So the real question comes as we circle back to our passage for the day is, well, how do we live in such a way? How do we pursue a life where we are being faithful as a family? Now, I know that not everybody in our congregation necessarily is in that particular place, but it doesn't mean that these things still don't pertain to you in some form or fashion. But we will start with the, the first part of this, which is the beginning of this passage starts with two commands to two different people, the wife and the husband. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord, and husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. One of the things that we, I noticed, and I learned this through counseling, is if you want a healthy family dynamic, the very first place it starts with is the husband and the wife. They talk about this all the time. Oh, you want to have, um, you want your children to be secure, to, to, you want your children to know about the faith. Like, it always comes back to that first relationship. And it's so interesting because we see that one of the first relationships that God ordained, the first relationship outside of himself, the first humanly 
uh, relationship is this marriage. And he talks about the necessity of the man cleaving himself and that becoming a one, like it's that intimate, that they become one. They become almost indispensable from each other. But it's also important to note that they are two very different entities. God created man and he created woman and he created them very differently. And I think we see just a peek into this in this verse. Uh, first, we see that women are supposed to submit themselves to the husband. Now, this verse has been absolutely abused. Um, I, I've gotten to hear it abused a few times myself um, and, and mistreated. <clears throat> and so I want to just point to a few things. Um, that they are, again, these are simultaneous things that are happening. Um, I don't believe that it is God's desire to see um, anybody in a relationship that's toxic, abusive, etc. I don't believe that that's God's plan for anybody. We live in a very broken world. The Bible tells us over and over again, you shouldn't yoke yourself to somebody uh, unequally. Um, you have to take this seriously because you are merging into one. So it is very important that as we think about these concepts, as we think about how a wife and a husband treat each other, it is a recognition that both of them, first and foremost, are submitting themselves, are obeying Christ. That's who he's referencing. Paul's not talking to a bunch of pagans. He's talking to the church that's in Colossia, to believers who are professing faith, who are taking the, the, the supper every week, who have been baptized, who are literally going out in the midst of persecution and saying, hey, I'm a Christian where they could be socially ostracized and possibly oppressed. So these aren't socially acceptable Christians. These are, if you will, hardcore kind of Christians in some sense. And what he's saying is, is that wives need to, should submit themselves to their husbands. It's interesting because if you read about this and you look at that word submit, along the lines of one of the definitions there in the Greek is respect. And this is something that I've, that I've studied a little bit in my trying to understand the, the psychology of my own self and what I desire and why I am the way I am sometimes. But one thing that in general most men, and I would say almost all men, desire, the way we were built, is a desire to be respected. I think as a child, every little boy, the, one, the words that he wants to hear out of his father's mouth is, I'm proud of you. I respect you. I grew up in a typical, <laughs> you know, uh, American home. I had a good dad. I love my dad. But I can count on about one hand how many times he said that. And I, every one of those was a treasure. Every one of them. I think it's just as interesting. When Jesus gets baptized, what does God say? Right? A voice booms out from the heavens. This is my son. Right? And whom I am much pleased, proud of. There's a desire for us to have respect. What a lot of people forget a lot of times is that the world treats men as we are expendable. We go to wars, we die, we're expendable, we're replaceable. We are only as useful, or we're only as loved as we are useful. Some of this is built by ourselves. We can't really point to other people and blame it. To be honest with you, that has been something we have created amongst ourselves to destroy ourselves. We're really good at that as a human being. As mankind, we have developed many ways to destroy ourselves. But men are often treated as expendable. What do we bring to the table? We can't really reproduce by ourselves. We don't carry around baby and make more children. You don't need a lot of men to do that. So typically, we aren't respected. 
men aren't treated as valuable. And when our value is tied to our usefulness, it's only a matter of time before we become replaceable. Part of the call that I think Paul's trying to point to here isn't about submitting to your husband in a sense of obedience. You've got to listen to everything he says. He's always got the right idea. It's more in line of how you treat the husband. That he is treated valuable not because of his usefulness, but because of the man that he is and he is trying to be, the person he is pursuing. That's hard. That's a hard thing to think about. Because you have to set aside some things yourself, ladies. Like, it's not easy. Because let's be honest with you, most of us are big, dumb idiots, right? Like, on any given day, your loved man person, (laughs) your spouse, is prompt to say or do something really dumb. Okay? We know this. I know me. My wife, if she was here, she's probably amening on the other side of that camera. Okay? But God's call for you as, as his partner is to give him value that doesn't have to do anything with his ability. That's huge. That's a big deal. Even if you think about what Eve was, right? Think about what Adam did before Eve got there. What, what did Adam do? He named all the animals. I don't know how many animals there were, but I feel like that's a lot of work. So Adam put in a ton of work, and then Eve came along, and Adam's value at that point was always work. God gave him work, he did work, and there was no value there. Did you notice how he was? At the end of the day, he was, what he recognized, man, I'm by myself, I'm alone. And God's like, that ain't good. That's not good. Adam's original value of himself was through his work. God's calling the woman to remind him, your value is not through your work. You were valued because of who you are. You were made in the image of God. We need to be reminded of that. Women, the husband is to love his wife. This is so straightforward because we do not get hints. Okay? Men, women need love. <laughs> we, we think women are us, so we give them respect. Like, I want to respect your boundaries. I want to, and we forget, like, I, I need to love you. I need to tell you that I love you. I need to show you that I love you. You know what love is? for so many women, it's the devotion of time. That might not be the same thing you're thinking. Part of that devotion of time may be presence. Like we were in the same space together. I love you, you love me, this is great. But it's also about, do I devote time to my wife in the morning for prayer? Do I pray for my wife? Do I devote time in my schedule to think about, to plan for, to encourage my wife? I'm not going to lie to you, I did not like this part of the passage this week because I get very convicted about this. Because like many men, I value, I often fall in that trap of thinking my value is my usefulness. I forget. I I do. And I have to remind myself that my value is not that. And that my call, my command, if you will, is to love my wife. How am I doing there? How am I devoting my time? Am I shutting off work for a little while so that I can be in her presence regularly? Am I making time for her? Am I reminding her? Because she she may know that I love her, but does she hear it today? And not in passing, but in in a real, authentic way. It's interesting because both of those things happen to be challenges to both of those people. Right? Wives, you're probably readily able to love your husband, but sometimes he does dumb things and you're just like, man, come on, like, what are we doing here? 
Like you could have, you know. Husbands, we're great at doing things. And we forget to do the one thing that we're supposed to do, which is remind ourselves to love our wives well. Both of those things require the Holy Spirit to change, to turn inside of us, to, to mold us, to shape us, to set aside those things, to chip off those hard, rough edges, right? But as we do those things, we begin to reflect what God truly meant for that relationship. As we move into verse 20, it talks about children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. What's great is this is also referencing Exodus. And if you were to turn to Exodus, you would get to a passage there in the Ten Commandments in 20, verse 12, where it says, Honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. There are many, many references to this as far as children go about obeying, honoring, loving listening to your parents. Now, all of us in here are children just by virtue of being alive, all right? And some of us are fortunate we had parents whom, and maybe we still have those parents that we engage with regularly. Some of us didn't. But all of us recognize that there's a couple of things here, and I think it's important. One, this is the only commandment where there's a promise attached to it. All the other commandments are commandments, and they have little notes, but this is the only one that says, if you do this, this will happen. Part of that's foreshadowing, because the Israelites aren't going to listen to their fathers and their mothers. Uh, they're not going to honor the faith that these people have, and eventually they're going to lose their land. So part of it is foreshadowing. But the other part is a reminder. It's, a, it's pointing to a, a covenantal thing. God had promised Abram so many years before that as long as Abraham and his family represented God, worshipped him rightly, followed his laws, that they would be fruitful and they would multiply. The same thing with our children. Children don't naturally want to obey. Like that's never been a thing I've ever seen a parent say about their kids. Like, man, my kid just like listens to me all the time. I've never heard a parent say that. I've heard some parents say, yeah, I got pretty good kids. Uh, you know, like, and I, I think every kid's a little different. We have some kids who are really good at following rules and they generally listen. And we have some kids who try every bit of our patience. And I thank God that grace is abound for them, <laughs> much less he has had for me. But we also have to recognize, again, that as we pour into our children, as we teach them, as we guide them, and sometimes as we have to discipline them. What we're teaching them is not obedience necessarily to us. We're teaching them how to obey so that they can obey the Father. We live in a culture where our favorite thing to do is to preach a Jesus who loves us so that we can get salvation. And this is a good message, but it's an incomplete gospel. Because Jesus doesn't just say, you gotta believe in me and get your salvation. He over and over says this, these, these really interesting two words. He says, follow me. Follow me. And all the stories where he talks to people who reject him, the offer is always there to follow him. But they can't obey. Specifically, I think about the rich young ruler 
He said he had done everything right. I have lived by the law. He had lived, he had lived a perfect life. He, he was perfect, I guess. I've followed all the laws. I've never broken them. I've never eaten pork. I've always prayed. I got it. I've lived an outstanding life. And Jesus says, all right, fine. Sell everything and come follow me. And the young man realized, and was sad. He realized that he wasn't going to be able to do that. He wasn't going to be able to obey Jesus. Part of our raising up our children is teaching them how to obey. And this is hard as a parent because, again, it means we have to obey, that we have to abide, that we have to be strong when we're exhausted. But here's the other part to that, too. Oftentimes, we immediately point and go, man, like, that's the parent's job. And I want to encourage you this. As a community of believers, that's our job. I hope, and I am thankful that they, most of them do, but our kids look at the other adults in this room as family. I, I desire that. Because I recognize that as our children get older, all the studies say this, but the, more importantly, the Bible points to this. Our children need other adults in their life who aren't their parents, who are walking faithfully in the Lord. Because I don't know what happens, but about age 13, 14, something happens, and all of our children now know everything. I don't know if you know this, but they now know everything. And more, and what's even worse is now their parents are dumb. Like we just have, we've gone comatose apparently. And what they need to do is see other men and women that they respect living in a faithful way where they can look at them and go, oh, like, that's awesome. Like, they did this. Like, they're living a certain way. They're, they're living out God's call. Because that is what will keep our children in the faith. I know all of us worry about that. I worry about that. But we live in a, in a world that is constantly trying to reach our children. The way we're going to reach them is not only through us, but through the people we surround them with. Lastly, it talks about fathers. Now, granted, it, the Bible, it does say pater, but almost always when this is referenced as a, in this particular form of the word, which is third person plural, it's always referring to parents. So we're going to use parents. It says father, it says father in the New Testament. It means parents. Don't exasperate your children, what a weird word to use, so that they won't become discouraged. We could do a word study on that exasperate word. We're not going to for time, but this is what I do know. We don't want our children to be discouraged. Our, we live in a discouraging world. We live in a world that is harsh, in a world where depression has quadrupled in the last 10 years for children between the age of 13 and 18. That's so scary. Our children are already discouraged. And as a parent, as a parent who had parents who would sometimes would fly off the handle, who would overreact to situations, it is such a demand on us, but such a necessity to know how to talk to our children in a way that is loving, firm, but loving and under control. It's hard. I, I, have, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've had to apologize to my children 
Like, look, I know that that's not how I should have responded. I felt like if you've ever watched uh, a coach after a bad loss, that's what I felt like. I was like, look, guys, we gave it our best, but, you know, it just wasn't enough today. And, you know, most, <laughs> like our kids, my kids hear a lot, but here's the thing. I don't remember hearing I'm sorry a whole lot as a, as a, a, a child. We're going to mess up. I, if you don't know that about being a parent, and this is a forewarning, and if you do and you're just giggling in the background because we're just figuring it out, you mess up. You mess up a lot, a lot. But man, like we live, the way that we respond from not only our mistakes, but also how do we grow and learn from these mistakes is so vital. I want my kids to hear I'm sorry, but I also want them to see me getting better. I want to see them learning like, oh man, like you, you, you know, you're not responding that same way. I've learned how important it is because our kids don't need to be discouraged. They don't need to be discouraged. They don't need to be discouraged from following Jesus because the rules are hard, right? They don't need to be discouraged because every time they turn around, they feel like they're messing up. Again, I go back to that. What did God say when Christ was fulfilling the first beginning part of his ministry? He looked down and says, man, this is my son in which I am proud of. How often are we doing that for our kids? It's a, it's a heavy call. And again, I reference, this isn't a parental thing. This is a community thing. This is our faith family thing. We're called to encourage our children to continue forward. I love the word encourage because it literally means to put in courage. Put, pe- put, put in, into people, we put courage. And it's literally the thing that I think all of us want. We want our children to be strong, to, to stand up for the things they believe in, to take risk and chances, to have faith. Because at the end of the day, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, but something that God constantly is telling his people over and over again, in the midst of whatever's happening, is be strong and courageous, for I am with you. He must say it in between, in Exodus and Joshua, I think it's like 60 times. Hey, be courageous, I'm with you. And so as we mind ourselves, we also remember to remind them, man, God is with you. God is with you. Be courageous. God is with you. Don't worry. God is with you. And he'll never forsake you. I might fail you. I'm I'm not God, though. I'm your father here, but I am not the father there. I might fail you, but God will never fail you. And so, as we get ready to close this, And we think about some of these things that we've been talking about. And we move into this month of mission. I want to encourage you as you think about these things. Your relationships around you are going to be how you live out your life. This week we talked specifically about the family and about how God uses the family. How he uses our relationships amongst one another. And God's desire for us to pursue a healthy, loving relationship so that the gospel can go forward. And how, do, how does that look like? What does it look like to live in such a way? But I want to encourage you that each and every one of us are still on mission. Whether we're on mission in the sense of 
how we love our spouse or our other loved ones, how we love our children, or how we walk alongside other families, encouraging them, loving them, and caring for them. But all of these things are done to the glory of God. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We want to encourage you to like and follow so that we might reach others with God's good news. You can hear more messages like this at www.theriversedge.church. Have a blessed week.